This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.47, A Battle Among Gods, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and today I learned I'm older than Sirocco, and not like a little bit. (laughs) Of course you are. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and angry at Zeta. Again. (laughs) Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 312 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Peter, Mike, Clifford A., and Jigon Man. MSB would not be possible without your support. And a very special thank you this week to Ellie, Brainchild, Richter, DJR, and Randy for sending us things in the mail. We love to get physical mail. If you feel like sending us something, the link to our wish list is at the bottom of our webpage, gundampodcast.com, and you can send letters, cards, and so on to 8801 5th Avenue, Unit 90038, Brooklyn, New York. 11209. New York City is the only part of the state that hasn't started opening up yet, and I don't know if I'm ready for opening up or dreading it. That's a whole mood. That's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 46, Sirocco Rises. After the recap and our talkback, we have research on the Bolinok Saman, its design, its name, and what it all says about Sarah Zabiarov. But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network. It was the greatest tragedy in the sordid history of disaster. The Ayuk fleet has stopped. Why? Why waste precious mobile suits when they can just wait for Axis to smash us? Like a discus hitting an ice cream cone. Some have called it Chernobyl times 10. Or like if Three Mile Island got hit by Five Mile Island. All types to your mobile suits. Repeat, all types to your mobile suits. Hope is a weapon. There are 40,000 titans in the space fortress. Ayuk mobile suits are capturing our transport ships. Escape is a mobile suit. The Zeta, it's coming back around. Survival is victory. 
Where are we going? The Gate of Zidane. No, I'm not going back. If we go there, we'll die. There's no hiding from this, Lieutenant. We have to rescue Captain Basque's kitten, Snuffles. From Wooder Brothers Pictures and the visionary director of Memento Murasame, Interplanetary, Man of Gundanium, and Barzam Begins. You can practically see it already. What? Access. The audio drama adaptation of the TV version of the streaming movie event of the season. Zedon. And now the recap for Sirocco Rises. In the aftermath of Axis's collision with the Gate of Zedan, Sirocco is on his way to meet with Haman aboard the Guadan. Rekawa will go along as guard and escort, but as they approach their mobile suits, Sarah rushes up to Sirocco, fear in her voice as she demands to know why she's being left behind. She pleads with him to let her come assist with negotiations, but her orders were to stay and guard the Jupitris, and Haman isn't someone she can handle. How do you know she pouts and turns away, almost in tears? On his way into his cockpit, Sirocco, almost as an afterthought, looks back at her and gives her permission to come along. Once inside his new mobile suit, the O, Sirocco receives word of a message from Jamitov. He will also be meeting with Haman, and warns Sirocco not to begin the talks without him. Sirocco laughs to himself as if all is going according to plan. In the Argama briefing room, the pilots are on standby while Shar is aboard the Guadan. Kat's paces agitatedly across the room, certain that Axis has betrayed them and ready to fight them alone if no one else will go, when Camille tries to calm him down. Hurrying toward death would only hurt the family waiting for him back on Earth. Yet when the briefing room phone rings, Kat's lunges for it, and after listening for a moment, he runs from the room in too much of a hurry to tell the rest of the pilots the message. The bridge has intercepted communication between the Jupitris and the Guadan, and it seems Sirocco and Haman are meeting. Without orders, Katz tries to launch the G-Defensor. Bright orders him stopped, but even when Astonaji stops the launch mechanism, Katz is able to take off. On his way to the Guadan, he checks his pistol and thinks to himself that if he kills Sirocco, maybe Sarah will see things differently. The bridge crew warn the Guadan that a mobile suit is on its way, so that they don't shoot cats down on sight, and Camille receives permission to go after the wayward pilot. Sirocco, Rekoa, and Sarah arrive at the Guadan, but only two mobile suits will be allowed to enter. To Sarah's obvious surprise, Rekoa requests to stay outside the ship, keeping watch in case Jamitov tries something. Once inside, Sarah waits in the hangar with their mobile suits, while Sirocco is escorted to meet with Haman. Deep inside the Guadan, Minerva plays violin for Shar, and he compliments her, saying that her playing has put him at ease. But he becomes suspicious when Minerva tells him she has to go. She is being moved to another ship. Close behind the Jupiter's pilots, Katz arrives. 
He is permitted to land, but Haman specifically warns her crew that the Zeta should not be allowed on board. Still, Camille is able to deftly fly the Zeta through the rapidly closing hangar door, surprising the crew inside. He is shot at the moment he opens his cockpit, and does not have a chance to speak to Katz before the guards lead Katz away. Spotting Sarah, Camille pleads with her to go stop Katz, but she refuses to attempt it. He is going to try to kill Sirocco and Haman! Sarah cannot believe it, but Camille is certain he can sense murderous intent. While they argue, Katz pulls his pistol on the guard locking him up, and is able to disarm him. Working his way deeper into the ship, he tries to knock out another guard with the butt of his gun and fails. The guard knocks Katz back into a wall, and it is only by chance that Shar emerges from the next room in time to elbow the guard in the back of the head, knocking him out and saving Katz. On finding out why Katz has come, Shar tells him, I will kill Sirocco and Haman, before ordering him back to the Argama. Jamatov has arrived, and he and Sirocco sit down with Haman. There are rumors that the Earth Federation is planning to cut ties with the Titans, though Jamatov scoffs at the idea. Regardless, Axis now controls space, and Haman considers the Titans unfit to lead humanity. They are an entire organization of people held back by Earth's gravity. Sirocco agrees with her, but he made a blood oath to serve Jamatov, and he pulls a pistol on the Axis leader. You know what will happen if you kill me here, don't you? She asks with a smile. Sirocco is aware of the risks, but has decided that Haman is too dangerous to let live. At this critical moment, the door opens, and Shar enters, firing on the gathered leaders. He hits Sirocco in the shoulder, and from across the ship, Sarah feels Sirocco's pain, and shoots one of her mobile suit's guns through the ship, sending laser fire lancing through the meeting room. Everyone makes a run for it, and Sirocco finds himself alone with Jamitov, giving him the perfect opportunity. He kills His Excellency Jamitov Haimem, and when Sarah comes to help, blames the assassination on Haman. Everyone rushes back to their mobile suits, including Katz, who has not yet left the Guadan. Sirocco blasts a hole through the hull, and he and Sarah leave, with Katz and Camille hot on their heels. There is no sign of Shar. Once again able to communicate with the rest of the Titan's forces, Sirocco informs them of Jemitov's assassination by Haman, and tells them that his last words were that they need to crush the Guadan. Sirocco rallies the Titan's forces to avenge their fallen leader. The Argama launches its own mobile suits, and Haman sets out in the Kubele to distract the Titans from Axis forces leaving the stricken Guadan. Seeing this as his chance to eliminate Haman as a threat, Sirocco calls Reko and Sarah to him, and the three of them focus all their attention on the Kubele. Rekoa seems to have a clear shot, when out of nowhere the arm of her mobile suit is shot off. Sarah too is attacked, but not by the Kubele directly. A red aura, like rising flames, emanates from Haman. Sirocco concentrates, the space around him turning a sickly, black-speckled yellow. Time seems to slow, and he can see the Kubele's bits, small, highly mobile guns, controlled by Haman's new type powers. Once he knows what to feel for, Sirocco is able to shoot a few, and Haman is forced to acknowledge what a threat he is. Her aura grows, spreading out like the wings of a great bird, and lashes out, 
hurting Sirocco and damaging his mobile suit. Electricity arcs across his cockpit as Sirocco's own aura, white instead of red, but otherwise just like Haman's, returns her attack. Both mobile suits emanate energy, but neither moves. Rekua calls out, confused, but Sarah tells her, Can't you feel it? They are fighting far beyond our reach. This is Katz's moment. While Sirocco is occupied, Katz blitzes in and fires. Sarah screams, No! And dives in front of the shot. Sirocco and Haman are jarred from their battle of wills. And in the seconds before her death, Sarah urges Katz to run. Full of fury, Sirocco flies towards Katz, but Sarah's figure appears in space, shielding Katz with her ghostly body. Sirocco seems stunned, but resumes his attack, only for Rekua to get in his way when she launches her own attack on the G-Defensor. When Camille arrives, followed by more of the Argamas mobile suits, and Char, still alive and in the Hyakushiki, Sirocco accepts that they are outnumbered, and he and Rekua retreat. From a distance, Haman is pleased to watch the Titans and Ayug tear each other apart. She flies off to her new flagship, the Guamban. Katz is dazed. When Emma calls out to him, he tells her he was in a dream. A dream where he and Sarah were playing together as children. He sobs into his console. In the distance, the Guadan finally explodes. Buckle up, dear listeners, because I get the feeling this is going to be a long one. <laughs> there is a lot to talk about this episode. Is there... Does that mean you don't want to talk about it? <laughs> I mean, nothing really important happens in this episode, right? Let's start with the driest, but to my mind, some of the most interesting parts of the episode, which is to say the politics. Uh-huh. All right. I think the most interesting question about the politics is what did Sirocco intend at the beginning? Because throughout this episode, as the situation evolves, as Agents of chaos like Katz and Camille disrupt the plans. Sirocco clearly adapts. Adapts. <laughs> exactly. But what did he expect would happen at the beginning? If I had to anticipate. You literally have to right now. <laughs> the impression I got at the very beginning of the episode is that he didn't think Jamitov would be at the meeting. And so I assumed he was going to make his own deal with Haman. Hmm. He's held himself apart from the Titans. Basically, this whole time, he has told several people that he thinks humanity should be in space. He has managed to sort of avoid being caught up in the Titan side of things so far. So until Jamitov butted in, it seemed like Soroka was on his way to make his own deal with Axis. Hmm. You don't think so? From that first scene when Soroka is talking to Rekua, he says something that makes me think that Soroka set up the meeting with Haman, knowing that Jamatov would then intervene. Because otherwise, I can't see why Sirocco would have told Jamatov that he was going to meet with Haman. I think he was doing this intentionally to bait Jamatov. I think he wanted to lure Hyman out. And I think that the 
ultimate outcome of this with uh, Jamatov dead and Soroko sort of taking control of the Titans forces in the power vacuum left by his death was the plan that Soroko had all along. Quite possibly. It is true that even <laughs> had uh, things not been interrupted, he could have killed Haman and then assuming that her guards don't manage to kill him, he could still have killed Haimem. Oh, you know, Jamatov got killed in the struggle. I managed to kill Haman to avenge him. You know, he could have spun that, certainly. Yeah, I think Soroko's ideal outcome is to emerge from that meeting as the only survivor. Oh, everybody killed each other. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I just remembered what I actually thought when I was watching the scene. I was flipping back through my notes. And Soroko's reaction to learning that he's had a message from Jamitov and it's, don't start the talks without me. I'm going to the Guaran. He laughs. And I'm like, oh, he's got a trap or something planned. <laughs> this is He does the very evil, villainous laugh. Oh, he's so evil. So, yeah, I, I got the impression from that early point that some kind of trap was probably involved. But I, I do think in the earlier part of the episode, I foresaw a potential alliance between through Soroko's faction and Axis, mm -hmm. he could have laid a trap for Jamatov with Haman. And then been like, well, I guess I'm in charge of the Titans now. Haman, how about a partnership? Right. We're both space noids. We both think space noids should be in charge. I was a little surprised that he jumps to, you're too risky to let live. <laughs> yeah, because that's the other thing that complicates all of this. When he pulls the gun on Haman, he really does seem earnest in his desire to kill her. Well, and as we see through their battle shortly after, she is a threat to him, maybe more than any other individual person. And so if he had any sense of that beforehand, it's understandable then <laughs> that he would want to remove her from the board, so to speak. Yes. And this episode makes really clear that Sirocco believes in the like power and potential of individual people, both as resources and as threats. Because it's Haman that he says is too dangerous. Uh, it's Jamatov that he feels like he needs to kill. And it's Jamatov to whom he has pledged personal loyalty, not to the Titans, but to Jamatov. And at the end, even when he and Rekawa are totally outnumbered and being swarmed by Ayuk mobile suits, it's only when Shar arrives that Soroko is like, oh, now I'm in danger. We can't handle this. We need to retreat. My biggest question about all of this is... Why does Jamatov agree to take a meeting? What does he think he's going to be able to achieve here? He has no cards. Well, he does say that he had been hoping to get Axis on his side again. But why would they bother? Like, what does he have to offer? Nothing. <laughs> Feels like sheer hubris. I think it is hubris. I mean, he's an old, inflexible guy who is accustomed to being the most powerful person in the room, in whatever room he happens to be in. Haman mentions, ah, the Earth Federation's pulling away from the Titans anyway. And he's fairly confident that that will not be so simple. But with the Titans reduced as they are, what could the Titans do about it? Yeah. It also betrays a lot about the relative strengths of all these groups that Sirocco, who to our knowledge commands just one ship. A really big ship. Well, but... right, but a really big ship is sort of equal at the negotiating table with the Titans and with Axis. Like, he is acknowledged as a separate significant power. 
which we've always known that he gets away with a lot. And the only explanation for that is that they can't actually make him do anything. So he has enough <laughs> power independently that they can't make him do anything. Mm -hmm. But it really, really gets highlighted in this episode how powerful he must be in his own right that he can blow off battles and undercut the Titans. And there's nothing they can do. And that is shown in a couple of other ways in this episode, not explicitly, but through clear implication. For example, even leaving aside his own personal power demonstrated in the fight, in the last couple of episodes, we've seen the Bolinok Saman, the Palace Athena, and now the O, all three of which are mobile suits that were uh, designed by Sirocco and his faction and manufactured on the Jupiteris. He has the capability to produce extremely powerful, advanced mobile suits. We've heard a little bit about Jupiter in the past. We know there are mining facilities there for very useful minerals and chemicals. One imagines there must be some kind of settlement, some kind of colony near there to support the miners, and maybe a community has built up around that that's more permanent. But we don't know what... Does he, does he represent some kind of space community or does he really just represent himself and his ship and the people on it? Yeah. They also managed to drop these very small hints that tell you a lot. Like when Minerva mentions to Char, oh, I'll be glad when we don't have to move around so much. I hear side three is beautiful. I hear it's like Shangri-La. She assumes that they will control side three. It has been indicated to her that mm -hmm. they will control everything. <laughs> well, once they have restored the Zabi clan, and during the meeting, Haman talks about herself as already controlling space. She has achieved dominance in space. But the other really interesting thing about that meeting is uh, visually, it is set up for us, the audience, to feel it as incomplete. Because the table they're sitting at has four chairs, and it's like, the, just the fact that the table has four chairs is not in and of itself significant, but the way they show this, Sirocco and Hyman are sitting opposite each other, Haman comes in, she sits down, and then the camera pulls out, and as it pulls out, it zooms out until we can see the fourth chair in the frame, and then it cuts, and it cuts to the eye catch. This is the, like, midpoint of the episode, and it feels like a very significant shot to me. And I wonder... Who should be sitting at that fourth chair? Well, frankly, Ayug. But Ayug has proven itself not very good at the political side of things <laughs> over and over and over again. They're really not playing the political game here. Shar is actually on the ship. Shar would be the natural fourth person at this conference. But he has been excluded. We get the sense, though, that they have sort of allowed themselves to be excluded. Because when Katz arrives, Haman is a little surprised that Ayug would make a move right now. But she assumes they're making a move, right? right. She assumes this is a political action <laughs> and is sort of ready to deal with that, to deal with a, a political move on the chessboard by this group, her erstwhile allies. So here's the problem, though, because everybody on the Argama is waiting for Shar to return. They know Shar is on the Guadan. Shar is, it's not actually clear what Shar is doing there besides sitting in on uh, Mineva's violin practice. And I think there's an open question about whether or not Shar actually intended to return to the Argama before 
encountering cats in the hallway, but we'll save that for mm. later. Shar, as the effective leader of Ayug at this point, is responsible for playing the political game. And unfortunately, Ayug has put all of their hopes on this person who just, he's totally inadequate to the level of scheme hatchery that Haman, Soroko, Jamatov, and Basque all engage in like second nature. I am, to be frank, beginning to fear for the fate of space noids, the Earth's fear over. Hmm. I think they are too fragmented to really stand up to Haman or Soroko and no one is really trying to bring them together, it doesn't look like. Yes, Ayug's message of what if the status quo but slightly better isn't as compelling as you would hope. What if no Titans? And everyone's like, yeah, we can get behind that. But you, <laughs> to provide continuing leadership and any sort of unity, you need a better message than what about not this bad thing? <laughs> Ayug has not produced a compelling counter-narrative. There's no, when Ayug wins the war, the Ayug Executive Council will, you know, guide space noids towards a better future. It's just like, what if we get rid of the Titans and then the current completely broken Federation governance system continues, but maybe in space now? Like, that's the closest they've come to giving us uh, an actual idea for how to improve the world. Politicians, but in space. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we've mentioned this a few times. There's no clear presentation of vision. There's no clear statement of what exactly Ayug stands for. <laughs> right. The Titans have a vision. Crush Ayug. Dominate space. And the Earth. Dominate everyone. Axis and Haman, they have a vision. Uh, crush Ayug. Crush the Titans. Dominate space. Ignore Earth. Maybe crush Earth. They don't super seem to care about Earth, except as a potential bargaining chip against other people. Unless Earth started to get a little bit restive. Well, yeah. I was very disappointed in this episode. There's the moment when Haman comes in and Jamitov is like, oh, are you late because you were busy making more cyanide gas? And at first, having completely forgotten the events of last episode, I thought, oh, does this mean that Axis has been manufacturing cyanide gas this whole time and supplying the gas that the Titans use on colonies? Oh, that's so, like, dark and, <laughs> oh, the machinations. And then Tom reminded me that she tried to poison Jamitov last episode, <laughs> and he's probably talking about that. Yeah, probably. But it would have been cooler if it were my thing. Yeah, you should be allowed to write Gundam. Retroactively. <laughs> Zeta Gundam remake, but Nina writes it. Are there, are there any other things about this episode that you would change if you were going to rewrite Zeta Gundam? I feel like I might be able to think of one. Unfortunately, the time has come to talk about Cats and Sarah. Now, you say unfortunately. With one very specific and significant exception, I actually really like a lot of what they do with both characters in this episode. It feels true to form. <laughs> I'll say that. I also think it's revealing about a lot of what Zeta Gundam has to say about these characters and the idea of heroism. But we'll get there in good time. They sort of run parallel to each other the whole episode because we have both of them acting as though they can take on the world by themselves. Sarah suggests to Sirocco that he should leave the negotiations with Haman to her. <laughs> I don't know how he didn't laugh in her face. What? <laughs> just <laughs> just the idea of it what the what <laughs> you negotiate with Haman 
But I get what she's trying to do, right? She's feeling excluded. She wants to be useful to him. She wants to be involved. And she really does feel invincible and like she can take on the world and accomplish anything like many 15-year-olds do. And is desperately afraid of being forgotten, being left behind. Yeah, I was curious how you interpreted, there's a line from Rekua. Mm -hmm. First, she tells Sarah, Sirocco treats us both the same. Then she thinks to herself, after Sarah has already gotten in the mobile suit, Sirocco's the only person who's ever treated me like a woman. So was she lying to Sarah to be comforting, or does she think Sirocco treats them both like women? I zeroed in on this line too, actually. I (laughs) I thought about it a bunch. Uh, So I'm glad you asked about it. Because I think the key to understanding these two lines is actually the line from Sarah in between. Because what Sarah says is, if I had defected from Ayug, then I could be his advisor too. Sarah is trying to hurt Rekawa by reminding her of this bad thing that she did, of treachery, of, of switching sides. And suggesting that it is the only thing that makes her special. Rekawa responds as though she has not been hurt by this to Sarah. But once Sarah leaves, Rekua thinks to herself, Sirocco is the only man who's ever treated me like a woman. She is reminding herself of the justification for her treachery. So it's more internal. Yeah. However, she does do another thing later that seems to be a, a nice gesture to Sarah. When they're on their way to the Guadan and they're informed that only two mobile suits will be allowed on board, Rekua says... Oh, I have a request. I request to stay outside. Because she knows Sarah's going to pitch a fit <laughs> if she is told to stay outside. Yeah, it's a it's a peace offering. On the other side of things, we have cats. Ugh. The word I wrote down to describe him in that scene in the briefing room is antsy. He just cannot sit still. It's what he's been going on about for episodes now. He is convinced that Haman is going to betray them. He's worried that Shar hasn't come back. It's just a matter of time, and we need to act now before we are betrayed. And he makes as if he's going to go take off by himself, and he says, I'll fight them alone. He seems to hear Camille when Camille says, rushing to your death is going to make a lot of people unhappy. (laughs) Specifically people on Earth, your family. But that only lasts as long as them hearing about what sounds like evidence of treachery, and Katz takes off by himself in an apparent suicide mission, because how can he possibly imagine he's going to survive that? Except that his motivations have changed when he's talking about it later. He doesn't say, I'm going to kill Haman. He -hmm. says, I'm going to kill Sirocco, and then Sarah will be free. It'll it'll change how Sarah feels about stuff. Because killing a woman's lover always makes her fall in love with you. That's how that works. That never backfires on anybody. (laughs) Maybe he is selflessly sacrificing his chances with her in order to free her from this psychic vampire. That is not the vibe I get from him at all (laughs) in that scene. It's not explicit, but I get kind of a selfish vibe. If I kill Sirocco, Sarah will see things differently. It's not Sarah will be free. It's not Sarah will finally be able to think for herself. I wonder if he's not just trying to prove his superior manliness. Remember, that's what she chided him about in the previous episode, not being manly enough. And what is more manly than murdering your crush's lover? To be clear, we don't actually think that Sirocco is having sex with Sarah, but the vibe between them and certainly Sarah's behavior and her jealousy make it very like a love. A romantic relationship of some kind. Yes. Immediately when he arrives, Katz gets taken away by the guards. 
He manages to subdue one, uh, but very shortly finds himself trying to knock out a second guard and failing. I felt for him, (laughs) but also thought he should have anticipated this. Regardless of how much training he has, regardless of how prepared he was, he's a 15-year-old going up against grown men. And he's not a large 15-year-old. And these men are not weak or unprepared or untrained. These are Axis soldiers. They are going to be just as, if not more, prepared and trained compared to him and have a height advantage and have reach advantage and be heavier than he is, which matters a lot. He's disadvantaged in every possible way. Yes. I think this scene is actually really important for understanding what the episode is saying with cats. So keep it in mind. It is pure luck that Char is in the next room, hears this, and comes out to save Katz's bacon. When Char tells Katz, I'm going to go kill them, you go home now, was that Char's plan all along? Hmm. To kill Haman and Soroko if he had a chance? Or is he just winging it because <laughs> Katz showed up and threw a wrench and everything? <laughs> He sounds like he's winging it. He does, doesn't he? But this is something that he's wanted to do for a long time. He also may know that the only way he'll get cats to go home is if he says he's going to go kill these people. But then he does go and try to kill them. Look, it's not the first time that Char has stolen a gun and then navigated the hallways of the Guadan intending to assassinate Haman Karn. This exact same thing happened before. He just got closer this time. While all of this is happening, we have Camille just barely managing to get on the ship. Uh, Telling them Katz's plan is kind of a bold play, because if his goal is to save Katz, telling them that Katz is an assassin may not help. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this scene is hysterical, though, because Camille and Sarah are having this, this intense conversation, and the two guards are there, and they keep like asking Camille questions about the things he's saying. Like, wait, what? Are you are you being serious right now? And they're just ignoring them because they are not important. They are not sad psychic teens. Camille, because he understands things now, <laughs> asks Sarah to stop cats. Sarah, uh, either willfully or because she does not understand things, is like, I don't work here. <laughs> I can't stop cats. You notice when she's sitting in the cockpit before Sirocco gets wounded, she's like hugging her pilot helmet. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting pose she's in. It says a lot about her anxiety, her vulnerability. It looks like someone hugging a pillow or a stuffed animal or, you know. And what was a very shocking moment in the episode for me, when she senses Sirocco get wounded by Char, Char shoots, he only hits Sirocco in the shoulder, she fires her mobile suit gun through the hangar and into the Guadon. I think that's the first time we've seen a mobile suit fire from within a ship, and it is a lot. It's the centerpiece of the episode. She manages to avoid killing any named characters. She's just got those good new type senses. Uh, Yeah, I wondered about that, because it feels like a completely unthinking almost reflexive response. It does not feel like something that she thought and concentrated and was like, all right, let me not hit Sirocco. It just happened. 
And I don't know if we're meant to think that she lucked out and didn't kill Sirocco or that subconsciously her new type senses are so carefully attuned to him. I think it has to be that. She was doing it intentionally and she was having enough of a new type moment that she could tell exactly where he was and not hit him. And that's well within the sort of package of new type of powers that we've seen people use before, especially in First Gundam. Amuro was really good at looking at a spaceship and knowing exactly where to stab it in order to destroy it. Everybody leaves the Guadan. We get our big set piece battle. Your mention of everyone leaving the Guadan made me think of this. There is a visual motif that happens three times in this episode, and therefore you know it's important, which is uh, people usually cats, but on at least one occasion, Camille, trying to force their craft through a hole that is either the wrong size or the wrong shape. Or like the first time he does this, it's when he's trying to take off from the Argama and they stop the catapult. And so he like forces his ship out. And then the second time is Camille, as they're closing the door to the Guadan, he just barely manages to alley-oop in before it closes. And then at the end, it's cats And they actually spend some time showing cats really struggling, trying to get the G-Defensor out through the hole uh, that Sirocco blasted in the hull. And of course, this is an episode about characters shoving themselves into situations and places they really should not be. Then we have our big set-piece battle, and while Sirocco and Haman are having their psychic battle, which I'm sure we will talk about more (laughs) later on, Sarah and Rekua see an opportunity to attack Haman, but unluckily for them, uh, Katz has the same notion, but with Sirocco. Oh, irony. Katz, who desperately wanted to kill Haman at the beginning of this episode, now is responsible for her survival. And as he fires at Sirocco, Sarah puts herself in the way of the shot, and he instead kills Sarah. How far in advance did you figure out that that was going to happen? Not very, which is part of why I'm so disappointed at the lack of emotional impact of it. Mm. Obviously, it's awful. She was a brainwashed kid. Uh, it is depicted rather graphically, and that aspect of it is viscerally moving. After her mobile suit gets hit, we go inside the cockpit, and we see everything on the fritz and her cracked helmet and hear her you know, talking very quietly. And then it all blows and she screams in the explosion and dies. And that's awful. But Gundam has done this so many times (laughs) that it's become boring. Like, how many times are we going to get repeats of Lala's death? Young woman saves one of the two men she's caught between from the other. Mm -hmm. And fits into the really terrible narrative trope of Let's have bad stuff happen to a woman to further a man's character development. Because the only real purpose this feels like it serves in the story is to do something bad to cats. And to Sirocco. He also is clearly affected by this. Okay, yeah. So two men's (laughs) stories get pushed along. This is the third time Zeta has done this. Moar, Four, and Sarah. When it happened to Lala, that was a series-defining moment for Gundam. It was a life-defining moment for Shar and Amuro. It was shocking. Yes. It had such an impact. It feels bad to have that squandered. It doesn't feel as if it told us anything about Sarah. We already knew she was slavishly devoted to Sirocco. Like, when Lala does it, it tells you something about Lala. 
it tells you more about her. In these other incidents, it is not illuminating in any way. It sort of feels like narrative housekeeping of we have too many characters. <laughs> Quick, let's kill some women off. <laughs> not to discount Apolli's death last episode. We may very well be entering the part of the series where it's a uh, memorial and episode kind of thing. Since we are coming up on the end. Uh, we devoted some time to talking about ways in which we think Sarah's death could have been made more impactful. For example, I think the simplest one is Katz kills Sarah intentionally. For one, that would totally upend the trope of the woman interjecting herself and then accidentally being killed. It would also require Katz to reckon with Sarah as a person with her own agency who needs to be stopped rather than just a puppet who is being manipulated by Sirocco. Alternatively, she could be killed by one of his comrades on the Argama, and it could cause him to break with Ayug. It would not be as complicating. It would not be as sort of interesting necessarily, but she could be killed by Sirocco if it seemed like, you know, the that Katz was finally getting through to her and that she was maybe actually going to go over to Ayug. Or just invert it. Sirocco has a bead on Katz. He's going to fire. Sarah interposes herself says, don't fire on cats, he's been kind to me, or whatever. And then Sirocco is just like, whatever, and blows a hole through uh, Sarah trying to get to cats. While that still has the feeling of the woman interjecting herself between the two men, in this case, she's not doing it fully aware that she is going to die. It's not meant to be a self-sacrifice. And it highlights the degree to which Sirocco uses people and they are disposable to him. And that is something this episode does want to tell us about Sirocco, because after Sarah dies, when her ghost is protecting cats, Sirocco does not care about Sarah's wishes. He is angry at the loss of Sarah, but not as a person, not because he respected her for who she was, merely because she was extremely useful to him. I don't know. I, his language there seems to indicate some attachment to her. I'm not saying that it was healthy or good. <laughs> but in the same way that Katz thinks that Sarah was being controlled by Sirocco, Sirocco seems to think that Sarah was being sort of unnecessarily confused by Katz, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That Katz had gotten into Sarah's head and made things worse for her. Because Sirocco, as a man, can surround himself with as many women as he wants. But for a woman to be pulled in different directions by two different men, I mean, that is unacceptable. And if the manner of the death in and of itself is not enough to convince you, they make quite explicit that they are referencing Lala at the very end of the episode when Katz tells Emma, I had a dream of myself and Sarah playing in a field, which if you'll recall, right after Lala dies, Amaro has a vision of himself and Lala in an alpine meadow, chasing after each other as children. This last line Katz has is great writing, because Katz is waking from a dream, both in that moment he's coming out of this vision he had of Sarah, but he's also awakening from the dream of being a hero, of being able to save her, of being able to win the whole war himself, and to never suffer or sacrifice or lose anyone that he cares about. I think this episode is really about taking these two children and their ideas of being heroes, being important, and ripping it to shreds. And it happens 
you know, from that first fight between Katz and that guard, when the guard just totally overpowers him. And it happens at the end where Katz goes out to try to save Sarah, and by the end of it, he is, he's killed her. It has been a long time since we've had any sort of mystical woo-woo new type <laughs> stuff happen in an episode. Woo type. <laughs> woo type. <laughs> I would say the closest so far is probably when Sirocco arrives at that battle on the moon and everybody can like feel his aura for probably miles. That sort of green and black background <laughs> takes over everything. That's the closest we've gotten so far in Zeta. And here we have auras that appear in space like huge phoenixes and that actually fly at each other and that lash out at each other and that cause not just physical pain to each other, but also appear to be damaging their mobile suits. Yeah, Sirocco's is like exploding with sparks. But you said phoenixes. I thought they looked more like ghosts or demons. Something about the wing shapes unfurling mm. and the fact that the shapes do look a bit like fire is what made me think phoenixes. But at various points, they have the face of the person superimposed over the sort of winged shape, which is definitely ghost or <laughs> demony. <laughs> it's the face, but it's sort of distorted. It's angry. And then the energy coming off of them, what you described as wings, seemed to me like tattered clothing or like a, a cape. Uh, exactly. It reminded me of two things from First Gundam. The first one is the demonic fighting spirit that appeared when Dozelzabi died. Very much like that. But the second one is, uh, although much less horrifying, Lala had a kind of similar thing happen where she did. her head was intact, but the rest of her body sort of uh, melted away. into space. Yeah. This feels so much more deliberate than either of those. This is two people who have an ability that they can use consciously. You know, when Sirocco wants to find the bits, he closes his eyes and concentrates. This is a thing that he has control over, that he can do on purpose. Again, another reference to First Gundam, Amuro we saw do the same thing. He could close his eyes, he could focus, and he could see not just where the bits were, but where they were going to be. And this is another battle that shows just how outclassed Ayug are. Does Ayug have someone who can do that? Because if they don't, how are they exactly going to compete with these two forces? How are they going to stand up to Haman or Sirocco when they are such powerful new types that they can really control and target their ability in this way? As you pointed out, we've seen Amuro do something similar, though not perhaps as powerful, and he's back on Earth. We know that in a lot of ways, Shar is sort of stunted as a new type. Yeah, he's certainly not on this level. And while Camille is certainly getting stronger and sort of developing his abilities, we have not had any indication of this level of power from him. And he doesn't exactly have a mentor. Did Haman and Sirocco have mentors? Maybe they did it all by themselves. Maybe. But they've had a bit longer to get accustomed to their powers than Camille does. They were also both, and I think this is significant, both of them were deeper into space. And we've learned the deeper you are into space, the further from Earth's gravity, uh, the more likely it seems that you will become a powerful new type. 
You want to talk about Ayug being totally outclassed. I don't think anything in this episode drives that home quite as much as the very last scene when the Guadan explodes and immediately Haman launches the next ship, the Guanban, which is just as large, just as powerful. And like, the power of the Guadan has been driven home again and again. The Guadan alone was a major player in the Titans Ayug clash. We saw that the Guadan was enormously large, especially compared to the Argama. A couple of times, the crew on the Argama talked about how terrifying it would be to fight the Guadan. And now after all of this, the Guadan is destroyed and they've just got another one. Yep, they have one just hidden away. We have a spare. Don't worry about it. They probably have 10 more. Well, and how long has it been since we've gotten a new Ayug mobile suit of any significance? We know Shar was surprised and impressed that the cubulet was done. Uh, even before that, the sheer quantity of mobile suits that Axis had been able to turn out was stunning. Yeah, things are not looking great for Ayug. But while to us, the audience, it does not really seem like Camille is a match for Haman or Sirocco. Camille is the only person from Ayug that Haman seems to fear. Yes, that was cool. Because at the beginning, she's like, oh, let whichever Ayug person it is come on board, unless it's the Zeta. <laughs> do not let the Zeta on my ship. Because Camille will do what Camille does and he will up. I was struck by the beauty of the animation in several parts of this episode. Uh, when the various mobile suits are leaving the Guadan to begin the battle outside, the Zeta gets a transformation sequence, and it's markedly different in quality from the episode proper, uh, but very detailed, very shiny, very sharp, quite lovely. So I think they were using the cells from the intro. Uh, from the opening. Yeah, okay. that's why it yeah, looks so good. It, it looks really good. However, there are a few points in the battle itself that also have that same shine, that mm -hmm. same polish, that same level of detail. Yeah, a lot of a lot of time and effort was spent, especially on the battle, making it beautiful. Um, I think part of the reason that's true is because the battle takes up a proportionately smaller amount of this episode mm -hmm. than usual. So, so they, they can afford. To, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did notice. The fact that I noticed it makes me think that it must not have come up very frequently before, but feel free to correct me if I just missed it. Lots of uh, use of a sort of lens flare effect mm -hmm. from inside the cockpits. A nearby explosion doesn't just wash out everything in in white or a very pale color. You get lens flare in the direction of whatever is happening it's really neat it's something they did a bunch in those maybe like first five episodes and then haven't done nearly so much since then yeah a lot of characters and mobile suits get what i refer to as glamour shots in this episode shots where they're drawn in great detail and they've been given really interesting shading or lighting effects soroko in particular who for someone who's supposed to be so like Bishonen and beautiful uh, has, for the most part, not ever been given really detailed artwork until this episode. Well, both he and Haman, him more so, uh, whenever he's in his cockpit in this episode, there's very heavy shadowing. He looks much scarier and more villainous than they've sort of let him look previously. And both of them get shots where they're facing the camera dead on 
inside their cockpit and have the heavy shadows across their face. Well, it happens sort of naturally over these span of episodes, so we don't maybe notice it as much as we might if it were a more drastic shift. But at this point in this episode, we now know that Sirocco and Haman are the big threats. They are the enemies. Jamotov is dead. Jamaican, who was the enemy for episodes and yeah, episodes. Like most of the show, he was the main antagonist. He's gone. Basque is still around, but feels much less important than he used to. It's difficult to imagine that Basque can actually maintain control of the Titans without Jamatov's backing. So they've just revealed the real bad guys on episode 46. <laughs> right? That's the episode yep. we're on. Yeah. And so visually, these characters get elevated in this episode. There's something very true to reality, though, about thinking you're fighting one battle and coming to find that actually you had judged things very wrongly and the situation is completely different. And oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no, indeed. And now the research on the Bolinok Saman mobile suit. Sarah's ultimate mobile suit, the Bolinok Saman, is, within the story universe of Zeta Gundam, one of a set of three mobile suits designed by Paptimus Sirocco and manufactured aboard the Jupitris. Sortying together in this episode for the first and only time, the Palace Athena, Bolinok Saman, and the O form a trio that mirrors the combined arms design philosophy of the original Project V from First Gundam. That was the development program that produced the Close Combat Gundam, the medium-range support gun cannon, and the long-range artillery gun tank. The O, highly maneuverable despite its size, is Sirocco's version of the Gundam, intended for close combat with enemy mobile suits. The Palace Athena is loaded down with heavy weapons. It's our gun cannon analog. The Bolinok Saman is not an artillery mobile suit in the model of the gun tank, but it is a dedicated support craft, equipped with few weapons but lots of sensors and surveillance systems. This alone betrays something of Sirocco's real feelings about the women he's gathered around him. There's nothing about Rekoa that screams, give me the mobile suit with more firepower, and nothing about Sarah to suggest that she'd be suitable in a reconnaissance role. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Rekoa is the veteran spy. Sarah is the fighter. Sirocco likes to make the women around him feel as though they are important to him as individuals, but he started work on these three mobile suits long before he met either of them. He designed their mobile suits, and he imagined the way that they would all work together before he ever met the women who would end up filling those roles. So, in effect, he's been trying to force Sarah and Rekoa into his conceptions of who they should be, his ideas of the ideal wing women. It also makes clear that he was always planning on having more than one woman in his... Orbit? Sure, that's a good one. Why put Sarah in the Bolinok Saman, then? Well, she is the more sensitive new type. Presumably, Sirocco imagined that the combination of the mobile suit's sensors and Sarah's new type abilities would work together to make her an effective reconnaissance unit. 
if only her temperament had been remotely suited to this kind of job. Rekawa's trauma in the war has made her malleable enough that she doesn't really mind remaking herself in the image of Soroko's ideal advisor-slash-girlfriend. But she's never been able to make herself as ruthless with her old comrades as he would like. So she's really not the best pilot for the heavy weapons mobile suit. And as for Sarah, her youth and naivete have made her susceptible to Soroko's manipulations. He must have seemed so wise and powerful to her. But whatever Soroko wanted from her, it's clear that the jealousy Sarah felt toward Rekoa was already starting to undermine her usefulness to him. Although the Bolinok Saman's appearance and capabilities have less to do with Sarah as a person and more to do with how Soroko planned to use her, the name of the mobile suit actually does have something to do with Sarah. And now, for this, we have to go back into the real world, where the Bolinok Saman, or in Japanese, Borinoku Saman, was designed by uncredited animator and mechanical designer Nobuyoshi Habara not by Paptimus Soroko. English fans trying to puzzle out the meaning of Bolinoke Saman have tended to fixate on the Saman part, probably because Bolinoke sounds like nonsense, and Saman, when anglicized, is spelled pretty similarly to a major holiday celebrated in the ancient Celtic religion. Since the names of its partners, the O and Pallas Athena, both have strong religious overtones, and yeah, I'll get to those in their own episodes in good time, this Celtic holiday feels intuitively like the right direction. But there are two problems with that. First, while the holiday I'm talking about is spelled as though it would be pronounced Samain or Saman, it's actually pronounced Sawin or Sawin. And according to the dictionaries I checked, the Japanese pronunciation for Sawin is likewise Sawin. So it would actually be a huge leap to go from Sawin to Saman, despite the similarity in the English spellings. And the second problem with this theory is that the name's true origin was revealed in an interview in the now-defunct anime magazine Out. The name Borinoku Saman is a slightly altered anagram of Mori no Kumasan. Mori becomes Bori. No becomes No. And Kumasan becomes Kusaman. Mori no Kumasan literally means Mr. Bear of the Forest. But to a Japanese audience, it would mean so much more, because Mori no Kumasan is also the name of a well-known children's camping song. Sung in a call-and-response style, Mori no Kumasan tells the story of a woman who decides to go walking in the woods. She encounters a bear, gets scared, and then runs away. The bear pursues, and over several rounds of the song, the woman runs and the bear pursues until finally it catches up to her. But although she expects to be mauled, instead, the bear reveals that it has been chasing her in order to return an earring, which she had dropped in the woods. She thanks the bear and begins to sing the song about her experience. (laughs) 
the history of Mori no Kumasan is fairly well understood because, unlike most traditional folk songs, it entered Japanese culture quite late. It only became well known after airing on the NHK television music program Mina no Uta, or Everyone's Song, in 1972. The lyricist and composer were unknown, but the arrangement was credited to Hiroki Tamaki, a Kobe born classical musician born in 1943. Later on, the novelist and sometime lyricist Yoshihiro Baba would claim credit for the composition and the lyrics. Baba's principal claim to fame is his long running Great Counterattack series of novels. These were part of a booming genre of pulpy, alternate history sci fi novels where Japan uses advanced technology and indomitable fighting spirit to win the Pacific War. Starting from the mid-90s, Baba has written dozens of these books, including ones with premises like What If Japan Had Helicopters for the Battle of Guadalcanal? What If the Super Battleship Yamato Shelled Oahu? And What If Japan and the United States Teamed Up to Attack Korea? It's not... What you expect from the lyricist for children's campground sing-alongs. But Baba would actually only briefly get to enjoy that lyricist and composer credit because he was almost immediately disputed, including by the arranger Hiroki Tamaki. And I'm sure some of you out there recognized the tune when I played it, and you have already figured out this next part because part of the reason it was disputed and the reason why Baba lost the credit is because. It was revealed that the song was actually based on an American camp song from 1919, written by Carrie Morgan and Lee David, and known variously as The Other Day I Met a Bear, The Bear in the Forest, or The Bear in Tennis Shoes. There are a few variations on the lyrics, but the basic story is the same person goes into forest, meets bear, flees. In the American version, there are no earrings, and the song ends with the singer escaping up into a tree, which, if I may editorialize for a moment, is a notoriously ineffective method of bear escape. But it works for the singer. Now, the American version of the bear song is itself, in the classic folk music tradition, a new set of lyrics set to the tune of an even older song, Sip and Cider Through a Straw. The prettiest girl the prettiest I ever saw. I This one dates to at least as early as 1894, but may well be older, and now we're talking about folk music, and its origins disappear into the mists of history. Baba continued to insist that he wrote the song. Hiroki asserted that the lyricist was unknown, but certainly was not Yoshihiro Baba. And that dispute has never entirely been settled. One theory contends that, since Mori no Kumasan is a scouting song, and knowing that the song's earliest confirmed broadcast was in 1972, it seems likely that it caught on in Japan in August 1971 when almost 24,000 scouts from 87 countries gathered on the western slope of Mount Fuji for the 13th World Scout Jamboree, and that it was probably translated into Japanese. For that event by some unknown scout or scout leader. Since then, according to Japanese Wikipedia at least, the song has been used regularly in early childhood education, becoming popular and widely known. 
you can find hundreds, probably thousands of versions on YouTube, and a Google search for Morino Kumasan returns 1.6 million results. But why name Sarah's unique personal mobile suit after this children's song? Well, for one, the Bolinoxman looks like a bear. A green bear with weird proportions, but a bear all the same. But if that were all there were to it, then the name may just as well have been any riff on the word for bear, or any word for bear, really. But instead they picked this particular children's song, and that is because, underneath all the brain poison and space murder and unrequited love triangles, Sarah's a child. At 15, she is the youngest character to die in Zeta, and possibly the youngest in Gundam up to this point. The only other contender would be Miharu. As far as I'm aware, her age has never been stated, but if she was around Kai's age, she would have been a few years older than Sarah. As Camille has told her over and over, Sarah ought to be living a normal life. She ought to be camping with her friends and singing silly songs about bears delivering earrings not piloting machines of death in a vain attempt to impress a man a decade older than her. We feel deeply conflicted about Sarah Zabyarov's death, both the fact of it and the way in which it is told. That makes memorializing her difficult and means that where normally we would choose just one poem, song, or story to talk about a significant character's death, with Sarah we've chosen several. There are many stories of women who die at the hands of a man who loves them, often because she has chosen someone else or betrayed him in some way. But this is usually on purpose. We know cats didn't want to kill Sarah. In many ways, Sarah commits a classic heroic sacrifice, an act of true love, taking a killing blow meant for the person she was devoted to. Yet in this case, it disturbs us. Sirocco does not seem worthy of her devotion or the sacrifice of her life. The ideals she professed herself willing to die for are vague, opaque to us even now, but she is still willing to die something we've known since Camille captured her on that asteroid. That willingness to die, even a hurrying toward death, is reflected in Katz in this episode, as he rushes off to fight an army single-handedly, heedless of the harm his death would cause. The parallels between Sarah and Katz in this episode are oddly and beautifully reflected in this death haiku by the poet Kaikai. Round a flame, two tiger moths race to die. Sarah chose to act of her own will. We think about the scene and nothing else would have been effective. And she did achieve her aim. She saved Sirocco. She even, in the end, bought cats a little time. This would seem to say that her death was not pointless, despite Camille's assertion that all death is pointless, and the rising sense of futility in the events of Zeta as a whole. The poet Banzan wrote of passing as dew on the grass, leaving no trace, transient as all things are. 
Yet the poet Chori wrote that leaves never fall in vain. There are many stories where one part of a love triangle attempts to kill their rival, but this is usually an act of pure jealousy. And while we know that Katz has some selfish motives, he also wants to free Sarah from Sirocco. We know Sirocco is using and manipulating her. Would his death really free her? Or would she be bent on avenging the man she was devoted to? Sarah is a young cyber new type candidate. Even with Sirocco's death, would she have been willing or even able to leave the Titans? Would she have survived the war? Would the end of the war have freed her? In the world of Zeta Gundam, it is difficult to be hopeful about any of these questions. This hopelessness and a longing for refuge beyond the suffering of everyday life is expressed in a poem by Oriku. Nagaraete, kono yo no yami wa yomo haete, shide no yamaji no izatsuki omin. And had my days been longer, still the darkness would not leave this world. Along death's path among the hills, I shall behold the moon. The biggest tragedy of Sarah's death is that of most young death. The world will never know everything she could have been. And as pessimistic as we might have been about her chances, while there is life, there is hope and possibility. Now that is gone. We can only hope that she is finally free. That some part of Katz's dream was real. That part of Sarah lives on in a beautiful place with no war. Next time on episode 2.48, Goosebumps. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 47 and... Won't somebody do something about cats? Operation Maelstrom. I think Bright's gone soft. Camille's giant bleeping cannon. Drat. This is why I never work with teens. The Thread of Fate. No, cats, this is my giant cross-shaped rifle to bear. And we have always been at war with Axis Zeon. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. 
Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Seeing a young, new-type woman die, throwing herself between her lover and a deadly attack, hits harder every time they repeat it. Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but the world needs to know. The TNN this week featured the song Chance by Kai Engel, as well as the voice talents of listeners Jameson, J.R. Schmidt, Manny Fresh, Crimson, Turlock, Paragon, Hobbs, and M. Marco. Special thanks to Hobbs, who suggested the name of Captain Basque's kitten. The research piece for the Bolonok Saman included brief segments from Mori no Kuma-san from the Ranma Half anime soundtrack, The Other Day I Met a Bear, as arranged by Naoki Tamura and performed by Amy B. for Kids TV Japan, and Sippin' Cider Through a Straw, as performed by Chubby Checker. The selections are used pursuant to the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The tribute to Sarah Zabiarov includes the song Uro Uro by the Kyoto Connection. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Because yes, somehow Sirocco is supposed to be 26. Because Gundam still does not know how age works. Does that make Rekua older than him? I will check that real quick. <laughs> I bet I bet Rekua is like 24. I would have pegged her as like... Right? Because Gundam doesn't know how age works. 23. Rekua is supposed to be 23. No. Yes. No. Yes. But I'm telling you no. (laughs) How old is Bright? Like 12? No, Bright's definitely like 50. (laughs) No, he doesn't have any scars. That's true. If he were if he were 30 or older, he would be gray-haired by now. He would be very grizzled. So long. And thanks for all the fish. Unfortunately, I just remembered something from the thing we just finished talking about. <laughs> all right. So you say you say your thing and I'll just do my editing wizardry. Iriki very selfishly thinks that merely removing Sirocco from the picture will... It was a red Camaro. Of course it was. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to be like, wait, do you guys think he's sleeping with her? And I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, right, we did say. <laughs> I do think he would lose... I think he would lose a lot of his power over her if that ever actually happened. Yeah, probably. And probably killed that guy. Probably. That was a pretty hard elbow at the base base of the the neck. neck. Although Lala only had that when she died. No. Also when she was using the cycle move. I think in one of the connections between... Uh, I want to say Camille too. Uh, I think in one of the like communion moments between Amaro and Lala, 
she took on that, that aspect. Will no one rid me of these turbulent teens? <laughs> hey, was that Tom Thompson reading the promo for Zedan? I thought he was dead. Oh no, I, I can see why you would think so, Lieutenant Commander Nina's daughter, but that's merely Ensign Duo Tomjina. 